If your faith in Christ is not leading you to live a lifestyle of devotion to Jesus, then you're in danger. It's a message that America needs to hear today. everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So welcome everybody to another beautiful Sunday morning that we get to come to God's house and hear the word of God. I want to welcome everybody in here, but I also want to welcome everybody that's joining us online from wherever, all over the world, wherever you're coming from. I hope you Keep enjoying the services and keep tuning in and wherever you're coming from, welcome to you as well too. Praise God. I'm glad to have everybody listening in and tuning in. So if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer before we start our message today, we'll, uh, we'll get started learning the word and getting fed. So Lord Jesus, thank you so much for blessing us another day today, Lord giving us another day that we get to live and move and have our being in you. Because, Lord, there's not one day that's ever guaranteed, ever. We could die today or we could die in 50 years, but, Lord, we should, we should learn to number our days. As I believe a psalmist said, Lord, Lord, teach me to number my days, to help me to know, help me to know my days. Help us to know our days, Lord that we wouldn't take them for granted because each day is special. Each day is so special, Lord, and it's a new day we get to live for you and have communion with you and bless you with our lives, Lord, and work at serving you, Lord. So thank you so much for giving us a new day, Lord. I pray that our lives today, everybody that's listening to this message and everybody that's in this room, anybody that will ever listen to this message, Lord, I pray that they would goal and pride their lives on trying to live and honor you, Lord. We love you and we praise you, God. Please bless the message. Bless our walks with you and grow us closer to you. I pray you reveal yourself more to us today than even yesterday. And I ask these things in Jesus' mighty name, God. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 20. We're going to read... 
16 through 19, actually. If you guys want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. And we're going to read it over. Our title to today's message is, To What Do I Liken This Generation? Title, To What Do I Liken This Generation? Verse 16. Jesus starts out. But to what shall I liken this generation? Question mark. It's a question. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. So Jesus changes the tone a little bit here. He changes the subject. He goes from talking about John and the whole what we learned about last week and John the Baptist really being Elijah who is to come and you know the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence and the violent take it by force and he talked about you know like we talked about how that really had to do with a lot John the Baptist preaching style and what God was doing in his days and how that was bringing a lot of people masses amount of people to you know into God's kingdom you know the violent or the the forceful were coming in in great force and wanting to get saved and they were coming into the kingdom of heaven. But now he changes gears and he starts off in verse 16 with a new topic of discussion. He says, the question first, but to what shall I liken this generation? So what does he liken this generation to? His generation, what he's talking about is his generation. A generation is a, is a time period of an amount of people between 30 and 33 years of age basically is an age. It's a time period. It's, a, it's peoples that live from about 30s to 33 years. That's a, that's a generation. That's an age. So he says, what shall I liken this time period with all these people that are in my time period, within this 30 to 33 year time period? What shall I liken them to? And notice it's a question. He's asking a question. So what does he liken it to? The rest of verse 16. He says, It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions. So his generation is like two types of people. We have on the one side, we have the one type of person, we have the children. And they are calling out to, we have the second type of person. Their, their companions, or in other words, their mates, or their partners, is the Greek word there. Not just companion, it's mate, or partner, it's a companion. Now Jesus was famous for his, it is like, teachings. He gave these, you know, it is likes. For instance, Matthew 13, 33, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, or leaven which a woman took and hid three measures of meal till it was all leavened, or leavened, however you'd like to say it. And in Luke 13, 18 and 19, these are just a couple of it is likes. What is the kingdom of God like? Today we have 
I, what do I liken this generation to? So in Luke 13, 18 and 19, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Really, it, it is liking to teaching is really a comparison teaching. God is comparing. Jesus was comparing one thing with another thing, trying to, he was, you know, we'll get to that later. He, was, he has a point for doing it. He said, what shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. So most times, Jesus used the it is like teaching to describe something spiritual. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. What these people were likened to. What this generation was likened to. It's something spiritual with something that's physical. A mustard seed. Everybody understood what a mustard seed was. You know, you, know, you think I'd give you an apple seed. You think of an apple seed. I think of an acorn. You know, kingdom of God be like an acorn. You know, you know, it's a spiritual concept compared with a physical concept that Jesus did. He did this to help his listeners understand spiritual concepts with physical concepts because it helped people understand things better because we're not spirit. We are spiritual beings, but Jesus was God in the flesh and he came representing. He came telling us about what things that we never saw we're like. So how do you describe something that somebody never saw with its own term? Uh, the kingdom of heaven, it's an awesome place. Well, we don't we can't visualize <clears throat> we can't visualize a kingdom of heaven. We don't even know what it looks like. We can't see it. We've never been there. I don't know anybody that I've met personally that's ever been there and saw it. I know people in the Bible that God took up there and then they kind of gave it. And then even then, as they were trying to describe it, they were having to I'm seeing this and, it, and it's like Burl and Topaz and it's like this because you can't describe the kingdom of heaven in physical words. It's too, it's too amazing. It's too, it blows our minds away. And I believe that Jesus, the reason that Jesus did this and gave these, you know, these it is like teachings, it was to help mankind understand what God was wanting. We can't be doing what God wants us to do unless we first know what it is that he wants. If Jesus would have made his teachings confusing, or if he would have just said, oh, the kingdom of heaven, oh, it's wonderful, it's great. <clears throat> well, that's wonderful. If he would have made them confusing or not given us, it is like comparison teachings, then how could we understand what God wanted from us? How could we understand what he was trying to teach us? God desires people to understand what he wants so that what? They can start obeying him so that they can get saved. Because if he makes them confusing, how can, how can God expect to get confusing teachings and then have people not understand and then walk away? Well, I, okay, that was real nice. I, I sounded good. But what, what, is it, what was he saying? Oh, I don't know. Let's move on. But God wants to do that. Jesus wanted to do that. Because he wants people to understand so that they can react, so that they know what to do. They know how to respond to God. It reminds me of 2 Peter 3, 9. For God is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness. But he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants us to understand because he loves us and he cares about us. And he cares about our eternity. And he cares about every detail of our lives. Every single one. 
And God gave these teachings because of his love for us. Because why? He's trying to do everything. He's not trying to leave anything undone. He's trying to do everything to help us understand and to win people's hearts over to him. God is beckoning people unto himself. And he did it through the teachings of Jesus as well, too. And that's why Jesus taught these it is like parables, or it is like teachings. But to our scripture today, let's look at this likened to in verse 17. So he likens this generation to two types of people. And it's, he says, children sitting in the marketplace calling to their companions. So the we would be the children, and the companions would be the other ones. So let's look at what he likens it to. We played the flute for you, so the children played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, the children, as children, we mourned to to you, but you did not lament. So, as I said earlier, the we's here are the children, and they're trying to bless, and they're trying to get the attention of the companions. They're trying to call out, too, with friendly gestures. And nice gestures. They're going, hey, hey, I'm playing. Let's go. You know, you think about when you hear music, if you go to somewhere. What do you do when you're walking around? Me, I took my family to the Dallas County Fair this last week. And when we, and when we went to State Fair, and when we went down there, there was music playing. And whenever there's music playing, what do you want to do? You kind of want to kind of want to get moving a little bit. You kind of want to dance a little bit because, you know, it's music and you kind of just start. And as you're walking around the fair, okay, you're seeing other people doing the same thing. The music's playing and people are kind of, you know, they're getting into it and they're dancing a little bit. You know, that's, well, that's what, when you play music, that's what you want. When you play music, you want people to dance. So here we play the flute for you, but you did not dance. So think of how rude. That is, think of how ignorant that is. Think of how, you know, it's just not nice. We mourned you and you did not lament. We mourned you, that meant we're mourning to you. Hey, oh, I'm, come, yeah, hey, come on over here. Come on, come on over here. And you didn't repent, you didn't lament, you didn't, you didn't respond, you didn't do any, you just, no emotion, just blank. The children played the flute and cried out to And the companions did not respond. They just heard it, and they just kept on going about their business. The companions did, and they just kept on going about their business and just doing, you know, going up and doing nothing. So basically, the children were calling out to and playing the flute for in vain. It was was, uh, pointless. If they would have never done it, it would have been okay, but they did it anyway because they were just trying to do something nice for their companions. So Jesus is likening to his generation. He's likening his generation to loving children because you see the love when you're trying to play music for somebody that's something nice, something loving, and you're mourning too, but they're not lamenting. So these loving children are, are trying to bless their companions with friendly gestures of kindness and love, trying everything to get the companions' attention, but the companions are rejecting their love and their kindness. And I don't know about you, but when I read this over, and God really showed me what it meant, I kind of got, that 
it's, it's obviously not a good likened to. This is a bad likened to. You know, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like, those are all awesome things. We get, to, we get little glimpses of what the kingdom of heaven is really like. It's likened to this. And it's like, oh, you can get these visual pictures. Well, the visual picture that I get when I hear this likened to is bad. It's not a good one. It sounds to me like the companions slash friends or partners of the children are being rude and they're being proud and they're rejecting the children's nice gestures of love. So unfortunately, this is a negative comparison. This is a, this is a downer. This isn't such a good one. Uh, it's a terrible shame considering who the two parties were. Who are the children and who are the companions? Because Jesus says in the, in the scripture here, we see who the children are, and then we look to another passage, a parallel passage of scripture, and we get to see who the companions are. So who are the children? Read verses 18 and 19 with me. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. So John is like one of the children that's playing the flute for the companion, yet they say, he has a demon. Who's the they? We'll get to that in a minute. In verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking. <clears throat> and they say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the they's, or the, the, the we, the children, are Jesus Christ and John. So you can go back to verse 17. We, we Jesus and John, played the flute for you. We tried to get your attention we wanted you to dance, and you didn't dance. We mourned to you. We cried out to you, but yet you didn't lament. But who are the companions? Well, to know who some of them were in this Scripture, and then next week we'll find out who the rest were, but I'll couple them too. You know, you'll see proof next week. But the, who are the companions? Well, remember we talked about last week, we went to a parallel passage of Luke, verse 30. 29 actually and we read about how in john's because of john's preaching you know it was a parallel passage to this one how because of john's preaching many people were pressing into the kingdom of heaven you know luke 7 29 as a reminder jesus says and when all the people heard him even the tax collectors and even the tax collectors justify god having been baptized with the baptism of john so these people were Wanting, they, these people were the ones that were coming. These people were the ones that, you know, were the ones that were pressing in to the kingdom. But verse 30 of a parallel passage, something that Matthew left out, but Luke adds in as something to help us understand who the companions are. We go to Luke 30. This is the flip side. This is the companions here in our section of scripture here today. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And if you were to read Luke 37, 31, Jesus goes on to give this same exact, but what shall I like in this generation? It is like children. He, it goes on to give the same exact wording. He says the same words as it is here in Matthew chapter 11. But Matthew just left that detail out, so we went to Luke to get that detail. So there are your companions the Pharisees, some of them anyway, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You could even read 17 over again a little bit like this. We 
we went to the river and we wanted to baptize you to make you right with God, but you didn't come. You rejected the will of God for yourselves and not, you know, you didn't get baptized by John the Baptist. We, we cried out to you, please come. Please come to the river. Please come get right with God. But you didn't turn away from your arrogant hearts. You didn't turn away from your evil. So the companions of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist are all the religious leaders and, as we'll see next week, but we'll allude to now, and the masses of people that heard about and saw Jesus' miracles and John's preaching, but rejected John's plea for repentance, as the Scripture just said, and really what they rejected, they rejected the whole entire ministry of Jesus Christ and the whole entire ministry of John trying to bring people back to repentance. They rejected God's will for themselves. They didn't dance. They didn't get baptized when John was out there baptizing. And when even when they called out, we mourn to you, but you didn't lament, you still refused to turn away from your arrogant, wicked, rebellious hearts and you just kept going on and on and on and on and on. So not only did these guys openly reject Jesus and John, but they also said terrible things about them. Look back to verses 18 and 19. We'll look at the other aspect of them. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And what he was saying is John, John wasn't in, in it for excessive eating and drinking alcohol and, and going in there and being a glutton and all that stuff. He wasn't in there just trying to just go overboard and go to parties all the time. Yet, you say he has a demon. So we don't actually get to hear people call John the Baptist demons, but Jesus said here that they were calling John a demon. They were calling John the Baptist a demon. And yet all he tried to do was bring people back to God. And Jesus, verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, so I came and I, and I did go to parties. Because we read about how Jesus went to these parties and he, he went to Nicodemus, he went to uh, these people's houses, these tax collectors, Matthew, the sinners, you know, and he went and he did eat with them. Okay, he did go into these little parties with them, but he went in because he was trying to reach them with the word of God. He was trying to tell them about the salvation that was in the one and only true God and how to get it. He went in. Yes, he did go in eating and he did go in drinking. But then they say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber. Meaning he was an alcoholic. He was a drunkard. That's what they were calling him. He was a drunkard and a glutton. All he did was just lay his head in a, in a bowl of food and just left it there. It's all he did was just gorge himself every day. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. That, that wasn't a good thing to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's even to this day, if you're associated with somebody that's constantly you know, living in a rebellious and sinful lifestyle, or, and they're constantly getting in trouble, that, that people would look down on you even, even today with that because you'd be joining in with them doing that kind of thing. And that's what they were accusing Jesus of doing going in there and relating and associating with these people as a bad thing. You know, they didn't care about what he was doing. They just saw, oh, he's with them. 
Reminds me years ago, I used to go to this other church and I've been going out to a place here in Dallas, Dallas, Texas. It's called Harry Hines. It's a street kind of near downtown or by the downtown or Walnut Hill area. It's in Dallas, Texas. It's a kind of real rough place. Prostitutes and drug dealers and, you know, alcoholics and homeless people and the whole bit. And I've been, I've been going down there for four or five, six years reaching people for the Lord Jesus and telling them about salvation. It's in the one and only true God and so on and so forth. And I actually had people at the last church that I used to go to for God let us to open this church that actually said I was wrong because I went down there to that area to reach out to those people because that was sinful for me to even go down there to reach out to those people because I was going into like the lair of the, you know, the lion kind of a thing. But I wasn't going down there. We're not going down there to go into the places where they sell pornography. We're not going in there to go into the places that are, you know, are, are walking into these drug deals and these probably and do and partaking of. We're going down there just like Jesus did. Just like Jesus ate with the tax collectors and ate with the sinners to preach the message, Amen. to tell people about salvation that was in God. And that's how that's what we do. We go down there and we tell people about the good news. We don't partake of the sin. We walk into the area of sin and we bring light, the light of Christ into that area. So look here, they condemned Jesus and John the Baptist, even though they were bringing the good news of God. And look at how sad that was and how awful that was that they were doing that. Isn't that, that's terrible. And we know that Jesus was not going down there for an, in, into the midst for an evil reason. So why did Jesus give this liking to teaching against the real religious Pharisees anyway? You see, the religious leaders and the Pharisees and all these great supposed men of God were supposed to be bringing the people, the, the children of Israel, back to God. They were, they were supposed to be telling people how to get to God. They were trying to show people they were supposed to, not trying, excuse me, they were supposed to be teaching the children of Israel like you guys listen to me, I'm supposed to be teaching you the word of God. That's what they were supposed to be doing too. They were supposed to be the people that were looking for the Messiah, for the Christ. They were supposed to be the people that were, you know, looking intently for him. And once they saw him, because they knew the law and the prophets that prophesied up till John. Remember Matthew 11, 13, for the law and the prophets are, uh, for the law and the prophets prophesied until John. They were, they knew the law. They knew the prophetical teachings. They knew what it would look like when the Christ came. And they were supposed to be teaching people how to look for him and how to, you know, wait for his coming. But instead, what, what did they do? They, they say John has a demon. And they say that, uh, look, Jesus is a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they weren't doing that at all. They weren't doing that at all. Jesus gave this parable to rebuke them because they were wrong. They, they gave a wrong, they were, weren't bringing people to God at all. They weren't bringing people to Jesus at all. They were telling people that John had a demon and Jesus was an evil man getting, in, getting involved in all kinds of evil things. They failed God big time. They failed God big time. And this teaching is not the only place that we find that. Not the only place at all. There's other parables. So parables are kind of like, it is like teachings. They're like comparison teachings, just like it is like teachings. The parables are the same thing. 
There's other types, types of teachings where Jesus gave spiritual ideas and compared them with other things. We go to Luke 20, and we see another parable where they did the same exact thing, where Jesus did the same exact thing, Luke 20, 9 through 19. Then he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to the vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now here in the parable, the vi, the 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 man that was the owner of the vineyard was God, and he leased it to vine dressers. Those were the people of the rejectors of the day of Jesus' day. Verse 10, Now at the vintage time, he, that is God, sent a servant to the vine dressers. This would be a picture of the prophets. Remember I told you a parable is a picture of something spiritual to something you know, real. He sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed as well. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard, so that would be God, said, What shall I do? Don't you see God's love here? Why did God keep sending these people to these vine dressers, and they just kept beating them and, and hurting them and sending them away? But yet, the vine, owner of the vine owner of the vineyard here, which would be God, kept sending people. So what shall I do, God says, or the vineyard owner says, I know, I'll send my beloved son. That sounds familiar. Like God sent his only begotten son. But look what he said. He said, probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers, so that would be the rejectors of Jesus' day, saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is their heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus was prophesying his death. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And listen to what happened. And when they, that be the vine dressers or the people of Jesus' day that were rejecting him, and when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, what then is is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected has become chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but whomever, whomever it falls on will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on Jesus, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So what did they do? They rejected God's will. They rejected Jesus. They rejected him. And Jesus is foretelling his death. And they knew that Jesus had spoken this parable against them. They knew that in his story, in his teaching, that they were the vine dressers. And they knew it. Jesus gave this one against them too. So Jesus used these two types of teachings to rebuke the religious leaders of the day. And those masses that rejected him because they should have known better. They had no excuse not to believe. They knew the law. They knew the prophets. They knew the prophecies. And as we'll get to next week, it's an exciting section of scripture. I can't wait to get to it. They even saw his works. Verse 20, I'll just allude to it. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. So Jesus went around all the cities doing all these mighty works. All the law prophesied until him and John. 
All the prophets prophesied until him and John. Yet the people still saw these things and they did not repent. But this is the most awesome section of scripture to me of all today. What was Jesus's ultimate goal in using these teachings of rebuke against these leaders and masses of people that rejected him? Well, I don't know. Was it to rub dirt in their faces? Was it to, you know, scornfully, you know, get back at them? You know, they, they said those bad things about me. I'll get them. I'm going to say these bad things back at them. Maybe it was just to get them mad, you know? Because, you know, after all, like that last parable we read in Luke 20, they got mad when Jesus gave these teachings. They were mad. Maybe Jesus just wanted to get them mad, you know? <laughs> I'm going to rebuke them. That way they get them really mad. Yeah, I'm going to get I'm going to get their goat, you know? Because look at how they're treating me and John. Well, what was his ultimate goal? We don't read about it in the New Testament. We don't read about it in the Gospels. We don't read Jesus say, this is why I gave those parables. I gave them because. He doesn't. But the Bible does. The Bible as a whole and other stuff that God said does. So look at this awesome, powerful point that God gave me. This week. See, there was this mighty man of God. His name was David. And he was a mighty king of Israel. This is, you know, a thousand years or so, 800 years before Christ lived. And he was a mighty man of God, a mighty man of valor. God made him king over all Israel. Mighty man of God. And boy, he loved God. And most of the, a lot of the Psalms are written by him. And he knew how to worship God. And, and he was really a, just a sold out guy for God. But David was flawed. He made his mistakes. And you'd say, well, I, he was a mighty man of God. They, they, they couldn't have been that bad, right? Oh, no, they were really bad. They were really, 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 really bad. Like so bad that somebody might even read a David and go, Could, is that guy really saved? Because there was this one time see, when all the kings went out to war, but David didn't go out. He stayed home. And he, uh, he went up on his rooftop one night. And as he was out on his rooftop being lazy, being idle, because the Bible warns against idleness, and this is why, and he looks out and he sees a beautiful woman, and her name is Bathsheba. And he calls for her, and his people bring him to her, bring her to him, and then he knows her. He lays with her. And she's not his wife. She belongs to another. So David, this mighty man of God, went and had relations with this beautiful woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba, excuse me. Then, on top of all that, she gets pregnant. Yeah. She gets pregnant, and so David starts to be afraid. He starts to say, oh no! If everybody finds out I did this, and now that she's pregnant, they're going to know it. They're going to know it's me. And, they're, you know, and if you committed adultery with a woman in the Old Testament, you had the right to be stoned. So David should have been stoned to death for this penalty, this, this breaking of God's law, this act of adultery that he did. So what does he do? He calls her husband back home from the front line. He calls him back home from the war because he was her husband was a great man. He was a mighty man of God too, but he was out there fighting for his country while David was back at home sleeping with his wife. And he tries to get his, her husband drunk, and this happens two, three times, and he tries to send the man back home because a drunk man will... Usually, 
you have relations with his wife and won't even know it. And then if, you know, if he had gone home drunk, you know, and they could have, then now David could have said, well, the baby's his. See, the baby's his. He came home from war and, you know, he tried to cover it up. But this didn't work, see, because her husband, Uriah, which is what his name was, was such a mighty man of God. He didn't want to go and have the pleasure of his own home while his brothers were out at war fighting against other lands. He didn't want to come and have the, the wonderful pleasures of being home and knowing his wife and having relations with her while his guys were on the battlefield suffering. So he just wouldn't do it. So David then conceded and he said, oh, well, I guess that's it, I give up. And he's mighty man and he confessed. No, eh. He sends the guy back to the battlefield with a note to the commander saying, put this man with this note in his hand up in the front of the battle and get real close to the wall because I want him to get killed. Because he can't, people can't know that I slept with this woman Bathsheba. It was his real intent. So he murdered this woman's husband so that he could then take the woman and marry her and then nobody would know because then he'd be her husband and then they'd have a baby together and nobody would know he committed adultery. And only the commander of the army knew, you know, right, that... You know, he, he sent this letter down and only the commander of the army knew that, you know, that her husband died because he wanted him to. And he was a real, real big faithful guy to David. So David, David got it. He, Uriah got killed. He went, took Bathsheba, married her, committed adultery, you know, got away with it. He thought, he thought, I got away with it. I married her. Now the child's mine. I got away with it. But there's one thing about Almighty God. See, Almighty God knows everything. He knows everything. You can't slip nothing by Him. So what does God do? 2 Samuel 12, 1-13. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. So what is, what is, what is Nathan doing? Nathan is giving David a parable. Really? Yeah, Nathan has given David a parable, just like Jesus gave parables against the people of his day for rejecting him. God put a parable in Nathan's mouth describing something spiritual that really meant something physical. But let's go on. He said, there were two men in a city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. Now, the rich man, obviously, in this picture was King David. But the poor man had nothing. This would be Uriah who with just one beautiful wife, Bathsheba, the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children and ate his own food and drank his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take... And a traveler came to the rich man who, the rich man, refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So he gives this parable, this rich guy, this poor guy. Rich guy comes and he has all this stuff and the poor man has nothing, but yet the rich man, instead of taking out of his abundance, went and took this little poor man's one little ewe lamb. One little ewe, this man was poor. What was his goal in doing this? Look at what David, look what happened to David. This parable made David angry too, just like in Jesus' day. So David's anger was greatly aroused against this man. 
And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold the lamb that he took because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So that was David's response to what David had really just done. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man, David. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your, master, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your own, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. His sin's going to catch up with him. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up, <coughs> excuse me, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Sin always has an effect. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this in secret, David. You thought you could get away with this. But I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. David's response. Now you realize, by Nathan coming to David and saying this, David killed a lot of people for a lot less. David could have taken a sword and chopped Nathan's head off and be done with it. And that was it. Nathan was the only one who knew, and he still could have kept it a secret. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. See, the parable that Jesus gave the people of his day and the parable that Nathan gave against David in his day were meant to do the same thing. The parable was meant by God to make them realize, I've sinned against you, Lord. I believe that Jesus gave it the way he did against the companions of his day that were rejecting him and John because of his love and his grace. He wasn't doing it to be harsh. He wasn't doing it to be mean. He wasn't doing it to be wicked. He did it out of his love and his grace. 2 Peter 3, 9. God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God in the Old Testament dealt with his children the same way that Jesus Christ and God deals with people in the New Testament. God did all kinds of things for the rebellious children of Israel that constantly walked away from them, giving them prophets to warn them with all kinds of teachings to warn them, guys, you guys are living in rebellion. You're living in sin. Stop, please stop, because there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming on you for what you've done, for the sin that you've committed. There's judgment coming. Stop. But they didn't. So God went ahead and let the sin take the course. And they went ahead and got taken away from into captivity. And yet, then God was done with them. That <clears throat> washed his hands. He never, no. And wrong again. Then God, while they were in captivity, had other prophets that were in their captivity, in the lands of their captivity, and in the lands of their captivity, the, the uh, men of Ezekiel and the men of Daniel were post-captivity prophets. And they came in and they, they were still telling the people, hey, 
God still loves you. He still wants you. He's not done with you. Come, you know, it's okay. Hey, it's take your punishment. This is your sin. This is what your sin got you. So God in his love and his forbearance still had men, even in their wicked captivity, their punishment, still telling them, I love you. Still telling them I'm here. Still telling them God's not giving up on you. Because God is gracious and he's loving and he's a merciful father. We don't even realize how long-suffering God and Christ really are toward mankind. 1 John 4, 8 declares, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. For God is love. For God is love. Look with me to one more example of Jesus' amazing love and His grace. In Matthew 23, we'll get to it soon. It's a huge point here. I'm going to read it over pretty fast. Jesus is going on another tangent toward the Pharisees and the scribes. And look what he says. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when, you ha- when, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. He goes on, woe to you for this. Woe to you for that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup, your cup, your body, and dish. But, what is inside, but, but inside you're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He goes on and on and on. The whole chapter, Matthew 23. Woe to you, people that should have known better. For you know who I am and you know what God wants from you and you still rebel. Woe to you. So you think that's it, right? That's all Jesus had for him, right? Not. He closes with this. At the end, talking about these guys and how wicked they really are. Because if I was telling people they were that wicked, I'd be doing it for another reason, not like God. But Jesus closes with, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. Look at how evil these people were. Luke 20 I sent you these guys, the vine dressers, they killed them. They killed the son. They wounded the prophets. Look, Jesus, oh, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. They were evil. So you think that'd be, certainly God wouldn't accept them. Certainly God's, he's just telling them that to grind them into the dust. You're not, get out of here, get away from me. I don't want you anymore. You're wicked. You should have known better and there's no excuse. Get away from me. Oh, no. How often, he closes with, how often I wanted to gather your children together as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament.
But sin will still get up with him. And he tells him in verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you'll see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what was his heart? His heart, given these rebuking teachings, was not to destroy them was not to crush them into the ground, not to pulverize them, not to destroy them, not to crush them, to send them to hell purposely. His parables and his is-like teachings were meant to drive them to repentance, just like David. Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. Now you can sit there in your seat. If you were God and you sent all those wonderful people to tell people that you love them, that you wanted them to come to you, and they did those things to the people that you sent, I know from my perspective, I couldn't say how often I wanted to gather your children. I would have said how often I wanted to destroy you and send you into the utter abyss but not God. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing to dance. So you're going to pay for your sin. Your house is going to be left to you desolate. See, even though God wants to save those that are in rebellion, you, you will still have to pay for your sin, no matter what. But if you come, God can take it all away. Now, neither Jesus Christ nor John lived lives of sin or disobedience to God. They came to give God's eternal saving message to mankind. Yet the religious leaders, Matthew 11, 18, 19, as well as all those who rejected him, Matthew 11, 20 through 24, we'll get to it next week, spoke lies and terrible things about their character. You got a demon. a demon. You're a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They've jided him. They've evil toward him. And according to Jesus Christ, he likened his generation to children, him and John, calling still, calling out to their companions, trying to get their attention, trying to call them, trying, hey, I'm here for you. We're still calling out to you. Please come. Please dance. Please lament. Please repent. But they refused to come. This was God's way of trying to show these guys and us that He didn't want to destroy them for their actions against Him, but rather He was showing them His desire for them to come to Him, surrender to Him, and get right with God. It's always God's ultimate heart to try to get you to get right with God before it's too late. God... was still desiring them to repent, come, surrender their lives to Him, even though they spoke all those evils against Jesus Christ and against John. So what about us today? Well, Pastor Ed, that was, that was almost 2,000 years ago. You know, Ed, I don't know that it's the same today. Is God's heart really the same is God really you know, saying the same thing? Well, Jesus Christ has not changed. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
Jesus Christ is still, still desiring to gather people to Himself. And He's still trying to get people's attention by calling out to them. Nothing has changed on God's side. Today's Scripture is showing us that God truly wants to give His forgiveness to mankind no matter what they have done against Him. For you see, God is love. God is love. So where are you at today? Are you rebellious or are you surrendering? Say you're surrendering. No, I belong to Christ. I know God is love and I'm living for Him. I've surrendered. I'm His. Then keep going. Keep surrendering every day. Keep loving God by the way you live. Keep going and don't quit. For God, what He really wants ultimately from mankind is He wants your relationship, first and foremost. And from your relationship will spring everything else. From your relationship will spring everything else that will come. If you just surrender, if you just keep surrendering and keep living for Him, everything else will come. Keep going, Christian. Keep going, child of God. Keep going. For you already know the love of God. But if you're sitting out there and you're rebellious, then God is calling out to you even today, even though you're living against Him and in sin right now, just like the companions of Jesus' generation who were speaking horrible things about Christ and John, you can be speaking horrible things against Jesus Christ and John by word, or you can even just be doing it by the way you live. Yet, for them then, and for us still now, Jesus, is still Jesus was still reaching out to them to give them His forgiveness. How much more does God want to pour out His love and forgiveness on you today? He longs to give you His forgiveness. He longed to give the companions, those that rejected Him, His love and His forgiveness, even then, and He's not changed. He longs to give you His love and His forgiveness right now, 2013, in this world today. How do you get it? If you will just come to Christ Jesus today and confess your sins to Him and apologize to Him for spending your life living for yourself. See, God is just like a spouse. God is just like a boyfriend maybe that treats his girlfriend bad. Or a husband that is treated badly by her wife. God is just like this. He is the lover. And the one that treats him bad is us. And if we treat him bad and if we do something bad against him, what he wants is he wants us to be sorry. And he wants us to come and say, I'm sorry. And apologize for doing whatever it is we did wrong. 
and not keep going on and living that way against Him. He wants you to surrender to Him right now and give Him your life and stop living for yourself. He wants you to repent. Turn to Christ now before it's too late. And you'll go to your grave unforgiven. God wants to give His forgiveness, people. God wants to give His love. Will you receive it? Because He longs to give it. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. God says, I've been calling out to you for all your whole life. But you won't come to me. You keep standing against me. You won't respond to my calls. But, but God, I, I could never... I, I've, I've done this. I've stolen. I've cheated on my husband. I've stolen cars. I've ripped off stores. I've murdered somebody. God says, I know. God says, I know what you've done. Just like he knew what these guys did back then. He knew Jesus, when he gave this parable, he gives it past tense, this like teaching. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. It's past tense. He did it already. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors, said something that they did already. Yet even though they did all those evil things, they had said them already. Jesus is still here giving this like teaching. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned you and you did not lament. I know you said those bad things. I know you've lived in that horrible life. I know you're an adulterer. I know you're an evil person. I know you're a thief. I know you're a murderer. I know all those things. You can't tell me nothing I don't already know. But if you come to me right now, and you call upon my name, and you come to me, and you surrender to me with your whole life, I want to forgive you. I want to forgive you. Will you come? Because I want to forgive. I want you to dance when I play the flute. I want you to lament when I mourn to you. Will you do it? Will you just turn now? Am I not worth more than what you're doing right now? I'll still forgive you. And I'll still love you. And that is what God is saying to you right now. If you're against Him. Anybody in this world that's against you right now would never say that to you but not God, as you stand against Him, He's beckoning you to come to Him. Nobody on earth knows love like that. Nobody on earth knows love like that. But we can 
if we'll surrender to Christ and know His love, because that's His love that He has for us. Come to Him now. If you know you're not right, fall on your knees. Cry out to God right now. And surrender to Him right now before it's too late. And you miss out on His love and His forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much, Lord God, for this day. Thank you so much for your love. Lord, that you didn't, you didn't give these parables and these teachings to destroy. You didn't give these parables and these teachings to drive away or to, just to make them angry so that they would go against you more, Lord. You gave them to draw them to you. You gave them to beckon them to you. You gave them to them to help them see that they were wrong. so that they would realize their error just like David did and repent. So Lord, I pray right now, if there's anybody listening that's living against you right now, I pray that you would even let them feel your heart even through this message, Lord, realizing that I've blown it and there's no, I've been such a wicked and evil person. But you could still love me. Lord, I pray you'd show them right now that you could still love them, that you still do love them, no matter what they've done. And bring them to you right now. I pray they'd surrender right now and cry out to you right now. Save their souls. I love you and I praise you and I thank you, dear God. And I ask these mighty things in your mighty son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We would like to thank everyone who has joined us today to listen to Pastor Ed Spagnoli bring us more biblical truth as he preaches verse by verse through the Bible. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged to respond to the word of the Lord today as one life will soon be passed and only what is done for Jesus Christ will last. If you would like to support this ministry or contact us for prayer or for any reason at all, please visit gospelsavingchurch.com and enjoy our beautiful new website and click on the appropriate links. God bless you.